Welcome to River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg. My name is Robert Zirk. My co-host Nolan Bicknell is on vacation this week. On today's show, we're continuing our look back at 2017 with stories about Insurgent's resurgence at the Winnipeg Art Gallery, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter's visit to Winnipeg in support of Habitat for Humanity, illuminated ghost signs in the Exchange District, the University of Winnipeg's Indigenous course requirement, and Camp Manitou. We've got all this, some great tunes, and much, much more on today's episode of River City 360. Hello and welcome to River City 360. Robert Zerk here with you today. Happy New Year to all our listeners, and we hope you have a wonderful 2018. It's our first show of the year, but not quite our first show of the new season. That just so happens to be the way the calendar worked out for us this year. But we do have a very interesting program lined up for you today that looks back at a few more of our favorite stories from 2017. First of all, we will hear some audio from my visit to Insurgents Resurgence. It's the largest collection of contemporary Indigenous art ever hosted at the Winnipeg Art Gallery, spanning all forms of media, and it's open until April 22nd, 2018, so there's still plenty of time to go and check it out, and you'll definitely want to do so after hearing this piece. But before we get to that, as is River City 360 tradition, we are going to start things off with a song. And, you know, the weather, especially around the holidays, was, well, freezing almost doesn't even begin to describe it, with lows exceeding minus 30 degrees, not the most pleasant weather out there. Thankfully, it's gotten a little bit milder since then, but hopefully you've been staying warm. And so we'll kick things off with a song about warmth, and hopefully we'll keep seeing those more comfortable winter temperatures. K-Star will start us off with, I've got my love to keep me warm right here on River City 360. The snow is snowing, the wind is blowing, but I can weather the storm. What do I care how much it may storm? I've got my love to keep me warm. I can't remember a worse December. Just watch those icicles fall. What do I care if icicles fall? I've got my love to keep me warm. Off with my overcoat, off with my glove. I need no overcoat. I'm burning with love, my heart's on fire, the flame grows higher, so I will weather the storm, what do I care how much it may storm, I've got my love to keep me Me 
That's the sound of Edgy Day. Push it, an interactive installation by Tsema Igaras. It's a caribou hide suspended by rope, and as you make contact with it, a microphone amplifies the sound. Edgy Day is part of Insurgence Resurgence, the largest exhibition of contemporary indigenous art ever featured at the Winnipeg Art Gallery. Curators Jamie Isaac and Dr. Julie Negum started working on Insurgence Resurgence a year and a half ago by researching and visiting studios. Julie explained that it was an opportunity to include a wide variety of contemporary Indigenous artworks. We looked specifically across Turtle Island. Uh, we focused primarily um, in the territories within Canada. We looked at having as many Indigenous nations represented as possible. We wanted to also uh, make sure we had a fair uh, kind of gender balance. We also wanted to include LBGTQ2S communities. And we were also just really excited to showcase the various mediums. Sound, like in this installation by Scott Bennett Abandon, is just one of the mediums included in Insurgents Resurgence which also features photography, paintings, light installations, sculpture, beading, tufting, film, and animation. Jamie hopes that the exhibition will serve as a starting point to explore and showcase Indigenous artworks in other media as well. What was really exciting uh, looking forward and past this show is to think about the mediums that aren't in the show and it's quite indicative that there are so many indigenous contemporary arts working across the nation in all kinds of different mediums and really pushing uh, the boundaries of contemporary arts and so we're really looking forward to working more together on larger shows down the road and expanding people's knowledge about contemporary indigenous arts in Canada. Insurgents Resurgence showcases the works of 29 Indigenous artists, including 12 new commissions based on responses to the themes of insurgency and resurgence. Working with the artists to make leaps in their practices was really interesting in their commissions um, because they were excited, you know, about the theme and about exploring new works in a new commission. You know, we're really proud of all of the work in the entire show and the diversity and complexity that they bring uh, to the table in terms of a larger narrative of insurgency, political insurgency, and cultural resurgence. One of the commissions centered around the theme of cultural resurgence is from Joy Arcand, whose works in three areas of the art gallery have to do with the revitalization of the Cree language. There are three areas in the gallery that she has work in. One of them is in Gallery 6, and it's a light installation of neon that has Cree syllabics. She works in this neon, and to do the light installation in Cree syllabics as a kind of hyper-visibility of the language, but also in material. And it's not translated, and so I think that's a reference to the inaccessibility to language intergenerationally and through the many policies of colonialism. Intergenerational Indigenous people have lost that access to language, but there are resurgencies in the the language that um, generations are now able to access, but still with the acknowledgement of 
the whole histories and decades of not being able to access it and the barriers of learning a new language. She also has the one going up the stairs, which is translated in the elevators. And so there are some of her works that are translated and some that aren't. And in the elevators, there's a, a chrysalabics chart. So if people really wanted to try hard to unpack the work, they would be able to do it. But it, it takes some effort. And that's one of the most remarkable things about Insurgent's resurgence, its use of space. It's the first time that some of these spaces at the art gallery have been incorporated into an exhibition, taking it well beyond the regular galleries and onto, for example, the outside of the building or on the staircase. Julie explained why this was so important to the theme of the exhibition. For both of us, we were really interested in exploring site-specific work. We also uh, have worked really hard in working towards indigenizing or re-indigenizing the WAG space. So we're also, you know, we're thinking about how to reclaim space, how to shift the kind of dialogue and conversation outside of the white cube, break some rules while we're doing it. We were excited by um, inviting artists to specifically engage with some of the material. So the outside piece that you speak of, Kenneth Lavalley creation story, you know, will be on is on the front side, and that normally is taken up for marketing, and it's the first time that an artwork's been in that place. Also, Kenneth is working on the back side of the gallery for a permanent outdoor uh, painting on the back ramp. Uh, one of the works that's really quite beautiful and takes up the space in the skylight is Casey Koizan's work. Uh, you see it's suspended right into the actual skylight, so it's been strung through, and it has uh, harvest material from the Assiniboine and the Red Rivers. And he's really looking at the Indigenous uh, missing and murdered women, children, and men that have sort of been stolen from the depths of the river. Uh, the work's called Gone But Not Forgotten. He really wants to recognize the kind of disappearance that have happened to a lot of us and how it's affected us as families and community members and places like Winnipeg. Jamie hopes that Insurgents Resurgence will change people's preconceived notions about Indigenous contemporary art. I think exhibitions like this can be very transformative in um, people's ideas about people. Certainly, as it comes to Indigenous artists, I think people uh, will be surprised at their own biases and changed uh, in a way that changes their stereotypes of what uh, one perceives as Indigenous arts, one perceives as contemporary arts. So I think that people can be uh, can walk away from the show knowing that Indigenous contemporary arts is relevant to them and relevant to society. And the narratives are all of our narratives. And Julie expressed her hope that the exhibition will reach new audiences and engage more people in the arts. And I really hope um, some of the work Jamie and I have done around um, building with community or continuing to build with community organizations to make sure that there's a vast amount of audiences that are coming into the space. Um, also, we really tried hard to engage children. So um, we worked with an Indigenous designer, Destiny Seymour, on the exhibition design. And a key important part of us all being mothers was we really wanted uh, material and space for to engage children. It's also the largest group of people that come to the Winnipeg Art Gallery. So we really wanted to make sure that the work was engaging. We also hope that people are inspired 
inspired as contemporary artists, but also as youth or children thinking about working in the arts as a career. We really hope that it builds new generations of Indigenous contemporary artists and curators, cultural workers, and scholars. Thank you very much to curators Jamie Isaac and Dr. Julie Negum for speaking with me about Insurgents Resurgence. I highly recommend you go and see the exhibition for yourself. You can check out Insurgents Resurgence anytime during the Winnipeg Art Gallery's regular hours up until April 22nd, 2018. And you can find out more information about the exhibition by visiting the Winnipeg Art Gallery website at wag.ca. That's W-A-G dot C-A. Coming up after the break, we will revisit my interview with Sandy Hopkins, the CEO of Habitat for Humanity Manitoba. The Habitat for Humanity hosted two very special visitors earlier this year, They would be former President Jimmy Carter and former First Lady Rosalind Carter. And they came to Winnipeg to help build houses as part of a Canada 150 initiative. And really, you can't help but feel inspired by their visit. I mean, at ages 92 and 89, respectively, they're out there building houses and and still finding ways to give back. So we'll chat about that and about some of Habitat for Humanity's other initiatives, one that has a local tie here to Winnipeg right after the break. But first, here's Percy Faith with um 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 right here on River City 360. Thank you for listening to River City 360. My name is Robert Zirk, and I am now joined in studio by Sandy Hopkins. He is the CEO of Habitat for Humanity Manitoba. Sandy, thank you so much for joining me today. 
Um, thank you for inviting us. So Habitat for Humanity, it's a well-known organization that helps build affordable housing internationally. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about the Manitoba chapter in specific and some of the activities that Habitat does here in Manitoba? Sure. Last week, we celebrated our 30th anniversary. Uh, we were incorporated in, uh, in late June of uh, 1987. Uh, we started building homes in 88 and have done so every year since. So initially, we were Habitat for Humanity Winnipeg and we became Habitat Manitoba in 2011. Uh, We have uh, 14 uh, satellite uh, operations that we call chapters, one in Kenora and 13 in Manitoba, and the main place uh, operation is is here in Winnipeg. That's uh, where the majority of our building takes place and where administration and uh, offices are located. During our, our history, if we include the homes that are underway this year, we will have built close to 400 homes that we've sold to uh, families that go through a very rigorous uh, process to ensure that they meet the criteria to be able to purchase the home, and that is a key piece. Uh, the families buy the homes at market value as determined by an independent third-party professional appraiser that uh, looks at the house and says that house on this lot in this part of the city is worth X number of dollars, and that's what the mortgage is. What makes it affordable for those families is that there's no down payment payment, no interest on the mortgage, and payments are geared to family income rather than property value. We have uh, built in virtually every part of the city uh, except for a a few locations, but uh, we have, uh, uh, those homes are spread in many different areas. This year we've got a major project underway. Uh, We're welcoming uh, Jimmy and Rosalind Carter uh, back to Winnipeg. Yeah, and Uh, I wanted to talk about that. So it's the 34th Jimmy and Rosalind Carter work project. So They were previously in Winnipeg in 1993, and they're actually coming back to Winnipeg as well as uh, doing a build in Edmonton as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the the, the Carter Center has loaned the Carters to Habitat for one week each year since 1984. Uh, the first time they built outside the U.S. was when they came to Winnipeg in '83, and '93 rather, and 18 homes were built. And since '93, they've gone a year about a year in the U.S. and a year somewhere else. And a year somewhere else is almost always uh, in developing countries and uh, Bangladesh and the Mekong Delta and uh, several places in in Africa. And it's quite unusual for them to return somewhere where uh, they have already built. So we were thrilled to find out that uh, that they would be coming back to Winnipeg. Uh, the pitch from Habitat Canada to Habitat International to have the Carters come back here was built around uh, Canada's 150th birthday, and we committed to build 150 homes in partnership uh, with the Carters. Uh, we would build in every province and every territory. We would build in every month of the year, and we would engage a minimum of 25,000 volunteers. One of the commitments we made uh, to the Carters, uh, if, if they would come back to Canada, is that we would designate a significant portion of the homes uh, to Indigenous families. Uh, And nationally, uh, we're doing 30% of the 150 homes are Indigenous. Here in in Winnipeg and Manitoba, we're doing 40%. So we're doing 25 homes as our commitment to the 150 uh, total, and uh, 10 of those 25 are for Indigenous families. What does it mean to the organization to have figures as prominent as Jimmy and Rosalind Carter to come here uh, and help not only build houses but raise awareness? Uh, That's exactly what it is. Uh, The excitement about the Carters returning to Winnipeg uh, is wonderful for the organization and and for the community. Uh, We have uh, seen a significant number of new donors uh, join us this year uh, to provide support because the Carters are coming and we're seeing that very much with the luncheon that we're hosting today as well. Many of the tables have been sold to uh, organizations that uh, do a lot of good work in the community but have not worked with Habitat as yet and so we're delighted to welcome them to our fold. 
and the Carters are so gracious uh, with their time. Um, we've just uh, completed a media uh, interview with them uh, on site. So they're very gracious with uh, with their time, but they also work very hard on site. And uh, we have to remember that uh, they are 92 and 89 years of age, wow. uh, and they come out to that site first thing in the morning, and they're there till the end of the day. Uh, and while they do interrupt the workday to do these other things for us to help us uh, with our messaging in the community, they're really there to work, and uh, and they're an inspiration to all of us. Absolutely. So the Carter Work Project in Winnipeg is part of a Canada 150 initiative because the 25 homes that are built here yeah, are part of the 150 exactly yeah so we have a, a significant percentage of the, of the homes being built nationally are being built here in, in Manitoba and of, of the 25 that we're uh, we're doing uh, 21 are here in Winnipeg two are in Portage and two are in Brandon I was wondering if you could expand a little bit more on some of the Habitat for Humanity programs because there was one thing in my research the Habitat for Humanity Restore and yep. I knew of the restore, yep. but I had no idea that the project actually began, that the first restore began in Winnipeg. It, it did. Uh, Habitat's a very complex organization. We're actually in five different operating businesses uh, here in, uh, in Manitoba, and uh, none of those take into account uh, what uh, we're, we're probably known for, and that is fundraising and uh, organizing and uh, coordinating and managing uh, large pools of volunteers. Uh, but one of those uh, businesses is the restore, and uh, restore, we have two locations in Winnipeg, at 60 Archibald in the corner of Ellison Wall. We have another store in Brandon. And we sell new and used materials that are donated to us. Uh, much of it has to do with home renovation, home decor, but often they get much further afield than that. Uh, we have sold uh, mannequins and uh, fake palm trees and cars and boats and motors. So if uh, someone wants to donate it and it still has some use in it, we're happy to do that. Uh, the uh, proceeds, the profits from the store, are what we use to cover our administration overhead costs. So that when someone makes a donation to Habitat, that money goes in its entirety into the build program. Uh, and uh, so we're one of the few charities that's figured out a way to pay for ourselves without having to dip into those fundraising dollars. And the Restore was, as you mentioned, invented in Winnipeg. And uh, that's a, a serendipitous story that we may not have time for in this interview, but uh, but perhaps at another time. But uh, it has become so successful that there are now uh, more than 1,000 uh, Restore outlets, including 100 of them in Canada alone. And for the last several years, uh, Restore has been the single largest source of cash for Habitat for Humanity globally and will contribute something close to $200 million into the organization this year, and yes, invented right here in Winnipeg. Wow, that's wonderful. So definitely a great way, if you're doing a home renovation, that's a great way to not only find some great materials, but yeah. also to support Habitat for Humanity. And to save a bunch of money. Uh, we, we sell uh, used materials uh, very inexpensively, and anything that we get that's new, and about half of what we sell is new, we typically sell it for half of retail. Uh, and so we look at what the retail value of the product is and, uh, and, and uh, slice it in half, and, and that's, uh, that's our sticker price. In the, in the course of, uh, of what we do, uh, we will divert this year something close to 3 million pounds from landfill sites because virtually everything that we sell, if we didn't take it and repurpose it, uh, would, would end up in a dumpster in, in, in the landfill site. Uh, so if you extrapolate that across the country, if uh, uh, the two stores here in Winnipeg are diverting uh, 3 million pounds and we've got 100 of them across the country, it gives you a sense of just uh, how, what an important environmental uh, contribution the Restore makes uh, to our communities. That's awesome. 
So if you'd like to learn more about Habitat for Humanity or volunteer your time for an upcoming build that's taking place here in the city, you can visit habitat.mb.ca for more information. Or is there a phone number that people can call as well? The uh, main line is 204-233-5160. And then there's a series of menu options to take you where you wish to be. Perfect. Sandy Hopkins, he's the CEO of Habitat for Humanity Manitoba. Thank you again so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. Coming up after the break, have you ever walked around the Exchange District and seen those faded signs that are painted onto the sides of buildings? Well, those are called ghost signs. And there was a very special event this past summer called Painted in Light that brought some of the more faded ones back to life. It was a really cool event. And I spoke with artist Craig Winslow to learn more about how he was able to do just that. But before we get to that, here is Petula Clark's It's a Sign of the Times, right here on River City 360. Thank you for listening to River City 360. Robert Zirk here with you today, and I am now joined via telephone 
by Craig Winslow. He is an artist and designer based in Portland, Oregon, and uh, he's in the city for a very cool event called Painted in Light. Craig, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Robert. Thank you so much. Painted in Light is part of your installation called Light Capsules. Tell us a little bit about the project and how it came about and how you're bringing this to Winnipeg. Absolutely. Um, Wow, I guess it's almost two years ago now, um, but I did a uh, an impulsive trip, uh, kind of a Kickstarter project. I drove across the drove across the country from Portland, Maine, to Portland, Oregon, and uh, I was doing all these projection mapping installations. A lot of the design work I do tends to be this projection mapping. Like I'll I'll project content into physical spaces and on physical 3D objects. During that road trip, I was in Omaha, Nebraska, and saw one of these old ads um, that was black and white. It was pretty crisp. It wasn't as worn and nice. <laughs> I like the worn ones more. But I saw this ad and I, I pretty impulsively just projected, you know, brought it back to life and didn't think much of it. And then the next few weeks went by and I was, I couldn't stop seeing these, these ghost signs, these worn ads. Um, and it kind of sparked this idea to do this kind of larger project called Light Capsules. And I was planning it for like a year and just didn't know how to bring it to life until I had heard about this Adobe Creative Residency two days before the deadline, actually, and pulled everything I was working on together um, and uh, got the residency. And for the past year, I just ended that residency. So for the past year, I've been um, traveling all over the United States and in the UK, um, bringing these old signs back to life through projection mapping. And now I'm coming to Winnipeg. It's my first big series uh, post-creative residency. I want to talk about that and and what the process is like in recreating these signs. How do you go from, you know, seeing an image and deciding that you're going to recreate it all the way to getting it actually out there and projected onto the side of a building? Yeah, yeah, there's um it's it's amazing. There's so many really good candidates for these. Some of them are more simple than others. I I tend to like ones that are uh, technically they're called a palimpsest, which is a very kind of strange word for it, but it's any of these that have multiple layers to them. They kind of look like a double exposed photograph. You can sort of see details of one ad, but you can also see hints of another. Um, Those are my favorite because when I go to recreate them, I can actually highlight uh, a previous layer in time and just reveal, you know, one, one layer at a time. There's some animation that goes between them. I've actually like toned down the animation just because there's so much kind of happening at the moment that I, um, I try not to go like overboard with the animation part of it. But there's a ton of research involved. We've found some amazing historical photographs for the series we're doing in Winnipeg. Actually, there's a really great uh, example of one for the Stobart, Stobart Sons & Co. There's a historical photo uh, that we found for Barber Ellis Envelope Manufacturers. I saw hints of it while I was staring at this, you know, sign and couldn't resolve the whole piece of it because it is so, so worn. Um, but using that historical reference, I was able to actually recreate it. And um, all these I'm recreating in Illustrator, so I have these as like very clean vector um, versions that can be, you know, scaled up and, and just wanting to make sure they're as crisp as possible and, uh, and bring them back to life like exactly or as precisely as I can uh, recreate them. Definitely a lot of work involved. As I was reading online, it, you know, you're using multiple creative software programs to really bring everything to life. Yeah, there's definitely like, I mean, my workflow goes from just even Photoshop to stitch things together. I've actually been looking at a few other like stitching programs that look at, you know, like a panorama. Um, actually, some of the software used in um, sort of 360 video and 360 imagery kind of stitching um, because how, how I tend to want to do this is like get as high resolution imagery as possible to then be able to zoom into these signs. And a lot of the times these signs are, you know, really high up on a building or in a really tough spot. 
So there, there ends to be this like warping, and then I, uh, I, I flatten them out, and then I bring them into Illustrator. Um, I use After Effects to animate, um, and then Mad Mapper is what I've been using to projection map them. So there's a whole workflow. There's sometimes I jump in 3D, and um, especially for this time, there's a, there's actually a really amazing the Ham SX Ham. The sign that is at 185 Vanatine Avenue. That cam, we actually have um, Matt Cohen, um, my sort of collaborator on this endeavor yeah. for Winnipeg. He has some packaging from that actual SX ham, um, as well as the uh, Goldex uh, glass shine window cleaner or the, the oil, I think. But uh, I'm using the actual physical products that he has saved to then recreate these actual products in 3D and then have them kind of like appear on the ads themselves or kind of like come out of the ads a little bit just to show a 3D rotation of these actual products. Since oh, the that's super cool. So that'll be, that'll be really fun. And it's interesting because I've, I mean, I'm up to just about 30, 30 of these light capsules as I'm calling them, sort of plays off time capsules with light. But this is, this is kind of nearing 30 and each time I try and add like a little bit more to something. So it's not just like the same techniques over and over. This one's definitely going to be one of the most ambitious series just because we're doing five in one night. Um, logistically, that's very difficult just because we have projectors on different rooftops with different computers mapping different surfaces. And so there's a lot of logistics going around. We also are running against the clock because we're setting up during the day, but then as soon as the sun starts to set, we have to run and uh, you know map all of these, make sure they're all looking good. And then uh, we have to kind of run time going from 9 to 11 p.m., um, as far as like dark hours that you can you can see all these at once. I'm sure, you know, a lot of people when they pass by some of the signs where you can kind of make out with what's there, but it's very mm-hmm. faded, that there's a lot of curiosity involved. And it's yeah. kind of cool to get that story behind what's actually what's being advertised there. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely it has this very strong sense of place. There's the, the project itself. Every every place I, I go to with this has its own sort of story and its own local history to it, which is, I think, the most satisfying part. In fact, actually, someone uh, responded on Twitter saying they wish they could be there because their, their grandfather, um, Meyer Galpern, uh, that, that was his old business and building was the Milady's Chocolates, apparently. So it's amazing to see these, like, to hear these specific personal stories that come out of these signs that are otherwise just kind of sitting there everywhere around us. Just, you know, they, they, they have this history and this, this style and aesthetic and uh, interesting stories so Painted in Light starts out near King and Bannatine, but you can find all of the five locations over at paintedinlight.ca. Craig Winslow, the artist and designer behind Light Capsules, which is bringing these signs to life. Thank you again so much for joining me today and speaking with me about Painted in Light. Thank you so much, Robert. And in the event that you weren't able to catch Painted in Light back in July... You can still see some photos and videos from the installation at Craig's website, which is craigwinslow.com forward slash work forward slash light capsules. All one word. That's craigwinslow.com slash work slash light capsules. Definitely worth checking out. And you can see some of the signs that he illuminated and just how vibrant they are. Um, And there's a lot of cool history behind these ghost signs so definitely something to take a look at online and definitely something to uh maybe take a look at the next time you're in the exchange district you might see one of those signs that he recreated 
Up next, we'll speak with Kevin Lamaru, the Associate Vice President of Indigenous Affairs at the University of Winnipeg, and we're going to revisit our conversation about the University of Winnipeg's Indigenous course requirement, as well as the Weiwene Lecture Series. Before we get to that, though, here is Louis Armstrong with C'est Si Bon, right here on River City 360. Mm, C'est Si Bon Lovers say that in France When they thrill to romance It means that it's so good Oh, say si bon So I say it to you Like the French people do Because it's oh so good Every word, every sigh, every kiss, dear, leads to only one thought, and it's this, dear. It's so good, nothing else can replace just your slightest embrace. And if you only would be my own for the rest of my days, I will whisper this phrase, my darling, say see Thank you so much for joining me on the program today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. A few months ago, you spoke with our very own Stacey Cardigan-Smith, and uh, that was on the subject of reconciliation. And you touched on the course requirement at that time, and I'm hoping we can kind of talk a little bit more about that. I understand that the Indigenous course requirement was a student-led initiative. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit more about how that came about? Yeah, so the the story of the Indigenous course requirement actually begins with uh, the experience of students on campus who were part of a course where the instructor had brought in elders to come and share their knowledge and their teachings with the class as part of their learning experience. And that was met with what the students described as, as racism. You can imagine you know, uh, students rolling their eyes or, or being very dismissive or very um, unkind, uh, you know, in, in receiving these, these teachings from the elder. And our students were so uh, un- unnerved by that and so disturbed by that, so disappointed that that sort of behavior 
is still taking place with young people in 2015, I think at the time, that they uh, began to advocate for the creation of some sort of a mandatory learning experience for all students coming into the university about Indigenous peoples and Indigenous experience. And from there, from that moment of recognizing that change was needed, that, that their colleagues, their peers, their contemporaries needed some help in, in sort of rising above the legacy of racism that I suppose we've all inherited to some degree or another, um, that that began to work its way through the university system and eventually became the Indigenous course requirement. The uh, requirement was implemented beginning in fall of 2016. That's right, in September. What has the response been from students? So there's, of course, a range of responses and, and a range of experiences, and, and people are on a, you know, a continuum of readiness to hear these things. But by and large, and I'm, I'm going to be totally honest here and, and share with you the most difficult questions that I've received regarding the Indigenous course requirement from students who have taken the course. And of course, you know, my, my offices would be the front lines of receiving a lot of those concerns. The, the toughest question that we've had to respond to, honestly, is why did, didn't we learn this any sooner? You know, why didn't we have the opportunity to hear about this before? Why is this the first time that I'm hearing about these experiences, this Canadian history in my life? And this is coming primarily from non-Indigenous students. And, and what that suggests to me is that, by and large, Canadians, especially young people, are ready to embrace change. We recognize that our relationships with one another aren't nearly what we want them to be what they could be, what they should be, and we're ready to make a change. And, and this sort of you know, reaffirms for me a belief I've had for a while that much of the racism that I encounter, that I've encountered in my life, really isn't racism. I mean, not in the sense of genuine hatred for some other group of people. Certainly the consequences are very racist, but at its root, it's not that genuine malicious hatred. It's, it's misunderstanding. It's a lack of awareness. Most of the things... I hear said about Indigenous people are, are factually incorrect. It's a lack of understanding. It's a lack of awareness. And, and for me, that's actually a bit of good news in that if the problem is lack of education, then the solution is education. It means that the university and universities and schools have a role to play in reconciliation. You know, I've, I've actually uh, had the opportunity to hear one of the commissioners who helped author the TRC calls to action, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action, Chief Wilton Littlechild. And he said that by his estimation, that of the 94 calls to action, which we've talked about before, about 72 of them are about education and awareness. And again, that tells me that um, educational institutions like the U of W have a very real role to play in contributing to reconciliation. I would agree with that. And it's very interesting that you mentioned that last summer you did a workshop with staff of the Winnipeg Foundation, which Nolan and I were a part of. And we were both discussing afterward how we had never learned those difficult truths about residential schools and things like that until we were both in our adult lives. Right. So it's um, it, it definitely goes a long way toward building understanding and it'll be it's it's certainly a positive thing for the university to have in the years to come i understand that there are 
a wide variety of courses also that can fulfill the the course requirement. It's not just one specific course. There are different courses in different uh, faculties of the university. Could you tell us about maybe a sample of what a few of the courses might be that uh, students have the opportunity to learn from? Yeah, so you're you're exactly right that um, there isn't a single Indigenous course requirement. There are many courses that meet that requirement. In fact, when this journey began, there was a uh, uh, an institutional scan done to sort of evaluate what our capacity was to to uh, actually implement something like this and, and you know, much to my surprise I think there were courses that could meet such a requirement across campus across almost all disciplines and departments right these these were things that people were already experts in talking about you know indigenous representations in English and literature uh, through a historical perspective in the uh, even in the hard sciences you know, religious studies uh, uh, gender studies these were courses that oftentimes already existed and so what we've done is is we've worked together and, and collaborated so that each of the courses that meet the ICR are going to share certain characteristics they're going to talk about historical experiences they're going to talk about contemporary realities they're going to talk about reconciliation but there are courses in English there are courses in history there are courses across almost all of the departments in every term uh, we're working to try and develop and approve even more and so there are literally literally dozens of courses that uh, that are offered in any given term um, that can meet this requirement which is really exciting because what that affirms for us is that very simply reconciliation is not subject specific hey it's not something that historians have to worry about but mathematicians never have to think about or something that mathematicians think about but uh, physicists don't have to think about this is a human experience this is about our national identity this is about us as Canadians in real relationships with one another in 2017 and that's uh, you know that's a message I'm, I'm happy and proud to share that reconciliation is not subject-specific Absolutely. The university also holds a number of events. There's the Wiweni Indigenous Scholar Speaker Series. Um, there was a recent panel discussion that talked about newcomers and treaty relations. Could you tell us about some of those events that are being held by the university, maybe some of the more notable recent ones, and maybe if there are any events coming up, could you tell us about those? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm, I have to say I'm impressed you know as much about the university activities as I do. That's, <laughs> that's really cool to hear. Uh, yeah, we've got a number of things that we do that are open to the public that, um, you know, we're very proud of. The, the Way When A Lecture Series that you talked about is a, uh, a monthly speaker series that uh, my office helps to coordinate um, that brings in Indigenous uh, scholars from across North America. And you're right, you know, we just had a panel um, just this week that brought together newcomers from the Middle East and uh, Indigenous artists uh, Christy Belcourt and uh, Isaac Murdoch to talk about um, the relationship between uh, newcomers to Canada, especially in, you know, with uh, the, the, the current situation with asylum seekers in Manitoba and, and you know, us really looking at uh, the quality of our relationships with one another and, and treaties, right? And, uh, you know, these are the kind of conversations that we are, you know, happy to facilitate on conversation because it's, it's time to have these conversations, you know. Uh, you talked about, you know, your experience learning, you and your colleague, learning about some of Canada's difficult truths, you know, and, and I'm always quick to point out to people that, you know, it's, it's, it's not your fault that you haven't learned these things. 
there's a very good reason for that. I wouldn't want anyone to feel guilty for having never been taught these things, right? Um, that's part of the social history that creates the need for reconciliation in the first place. But I also think that it speaks to the goodwill of Canadians like yourself that there's such a receptivity um, to hearing these things now and to learning and to being a part of change. And it's uh, it's very celebratory. So we, we try to encourage events like this as much as we can. You know, we were very proud to partner with the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation and CBC and the Winnipeg Art Gallery to hold a public screening of Gordon Downey's Secret Path film when that was released. And that brought together uh, people from uh, the community and communities to, uh, you know, be in a space of, of healing and, uh, and, and, and togetherness for something that was, of course, you know, very emotional and very moving. And um, we're so happy that the university is able to, uh, to provide that. You know, indigenization is one of our strategic directions. And this whole concept of indigenization is, is really kind of, <laughs> it's interesting because it's undefined, right? I mean, anyone could make a guess as to what it means, and everyone might be right or might be wrong. But for me, indigenization is about safety, honestly. It's about safety of learners. It's about safety of cultural experience, safety of grieving, safety of, of, of identity. It's about our well-being, and it's about our safety, and it's about the opportunity to learn and grow with one another. And uh, I'm really proud of that, and uh, I, I invite uh, people to come and be a part of these public events. Absolutely. It's uh, it's really great that the university has taken such strides in building those relationships because that is at the core of starting on the journey to reconciliation. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and um, we're on this journey together. You know, uh, we've for years now uh, been embracing the, the, the phrase, we are all treaty people, which implies that we all, you know, are affected by the treaty relationship, which is absolutely correct. But you know, I think that reconciliation also involves all Canadians. We've all been affected by the broken relationship, and the 94 calls to action are our roadmap home. It's it's how we get back to the country that should have been our birthright, and um, we all have an opportunity to benefit from that, and we all have a role to play in contributing to that. If uh, there are students or members of the general public who want to learn more about the events that the University of Winnipeg offers in terms of Indigenous inclusion, where can they go to find more information? Well, definitely come to our webpage. We have a wonderful communications department that is always uh, celebrating the things that we do. It's a, it's a community effort to, to make these uh, uh, broadly uh, shared. Uh, come and follow me on, uh, on Twitter, Kevin Lamroux. <laughs> I'm always tweeting these things, and I'd love to, uh, to keep in contact with anyone that would like to uh, you know, learn, learn more about what's going on on campus, ask questions, and, and have a conversation. Excellent. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this afternoon. Oh, it's a pleasure to speak to you, as always. The next lecture in the Weiwene Lecture Series takes place January 17th, 2018, with Dr. Tasha Hubbard. It's a free screening of her documentary called Birth of a Family, which revolves around the reunion of four siblings who were taken from their family as infants during the 60s scoop, followed by a Q&A with Dr. Hubbard. That's taking place again January 17th at 7pm, and the doors open at 6.30, and that's held at the University of Winnipeg's Eckhart Gramate Hall. 
Coming up after the break, we'll revisit our story at Camp Manitou and learn more about its recent upgrades and its upcoming expansions. But before we get to that, here is Teddy Roderman and the New World Trio with It Was a Very Good Year, right here on River City 360. It's a summer camp that's growing by leaps, bounds, and zips. The zip line is just one of many recent upgrades at Camp Manitou, a summer camp and recreation facility. The new activities have made a huge difference for the kids who come here. We fixed up the pool and that's made a huge difference. We added the new climbing wall and the new zip line a year and a half ago. That's Rick Bohinski, Camp Manitou's camp director. And now we've added the bathroom and shower facility, which helps service our 12 new cabins, which again has been a game changer because that's got us into overnight camping. And we fixed up the lodge and washrooms and a lot of those investments have just made a huge difference in the experience and the environment that the kids get to enjoy camping. Camp Manitou is nestled alongside a bend in the Assiniboine River just outside of Winnipeg. It was founded in 1930 by a group of Winnipeg service clubs as a way to provide camp experiences to underserved youth. A few years ago, the True North Youth Foundation stepped up to help continue that tradition. Yeah, I guess it started three and a half years ago in January of 2014 when True North found out that the six service clubs were struggling a little bit in terms of maintaining and operating the camp. And it just seemed to fit with other programs that the True North Youth Foundation was doing. It seemed like a good fit to get involved with underserved kids and to help out and create programs. And so that's when it all came about over three and a half years ago. Yeah, you're good to go now. You want to... <laughs> camp Manitou's number one rule is to have fun. But as Rick explained, there's also so much more that kids get out of the camp experience. It really charges the batteries for myself and our staff to see kids that have never had the chance to experience camp to get that experience. So they learn how to take a risk, how to be part of a team, how to stretch yourself, go outside, do kind of what your typical boundaries are and try something new. And that's really encouraging when you see kids that have never had the chance take that opportunity. And that's probably one of the most exciting things for me in this position. Rick mentioned that the gifts that individual donors make to Camp Manitou are a big reason why the camp is able to provide meaningful experiences to so many youth. The contributions at Jets Games are huge and allow us to do a lot of our infrastructure changes, but the contributions from donors sometimes go unnoticed and every little bit counts. The 10s, the 20s, the 50s, the 
hundreds and even the thousands that we get from donors make a huge difference because that's what provides meals for some of the kids, transportation for some of the kids, um, some of our sports equipment for some of the kids. So really what the donors provide is vastly important to the overall experience at camp. And we greatly appreciate the contributions of the Winnipeg Foundation has made over the years because they're substantial and anyone who's helped donate over the years really makes a huge difference in the lives of kids. And this teaming up between donors, the service clubs that started Camp Manitou, and the True North Youth Foundation have helped the camp to grow exponentially. So in terms of individual campers that have come, it's grown from each summer it grows by a couple hundred who get that full week-long experience. But then in our in the groups that come, especially inner city groups, we've seen that jump by a couple thousand every summer to this past summer being over 8,000 kids that had a chance from groups, primarily from inner city Winnipeg, to experience camp. For us, that's super encouraging and makes us want to keep doing more and more. The positive impact even goes beyond the campers as well. It's really exciting for us not only to see the campers get opportunities, but for our university and high school students who are employed here and have a great summer job and are getting great experience working with kids. But now we see some kids that are grade 2, 3, 4, 5 when they started out in our hockey academy program, now becoming high school students who end up working here and getting a summer job. For us, I don't know if it gets any more gratifying than that to see someone who we helped now coming and giving back and helping others, which is fantastic. Having had Rick guide us on a walk through the camp, the completed upgrades that we saw were pretty impressive on their own. But as the camp continues to grow and provide more programming, Rick shared that there are a lot of improvements to Camp Manitou that are still to come. We've got 11 acres that was donated to us on the north side of the property, and that's going to be a real game changer for us. So we're going to put in a man-made lake. In addition to that, we're going to be building some new mountain bike trails and a high ropes course and putting in another zip line. Uh, it's going to be a total game changer for us at Camp Manitou. And if you'd like to learn more about Camp Manitou or to make a gift, you can visit campmanitou.mb.ca. And that's a wrap on our look back at 2017. Thank you so much for listening, and a big thank you to all of our guests who joined us over the past season. If you'd like to hear more views and news from around Winnipeg, listen to any of our past episodes, or subscribe to our podcast, you can visit our website at rivercity360.org. Again, that's rivercity360.org. River City 360, Views and News from Around Winnipeg, is a project of the Winnipeg Foundation, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM. And we'd love to hear your feedback about the program or about any of the stories that you heard this past season. Uh, If you'd like to send us some feedback, if you'd like to request a song, or if you'd just like to say hello, call us at 204-944-9474, extension 360. That's our listener line, and so you can leave a message 24-7, doesn't matter when you're listening to the show. Um, You can leave us a message anytime, and we'd be happy to hear from you. So again, the number is 204-944-9474, extension 360. You can also send us an email at rivercity360 at wpgfdn.org. Again, that's rivercity360 at wpgfdn.org. And if you use social media, you can also find us there. We are at RiverCity360 on Twitter, or you can find our Facebook page. It's called RiverCity360. You can just search for it uh, in the Facebook search bar, and you can find us there as well. I'm Robert Zirk, signing off for River City 360. Thank you again so much for listening. My co-host Nolan Bicknell will be back next week, and our brand new season begins next week as well. So we look forward to that. Until then... 
Have a great day and a great weekend. Thank you.